Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Good morning, everybody. My name's Sandy. I'm an alcoholic. I asked Lee to set it up this way because I can stand for 45 minutes, but I couldn't stand all morning, I can tell you that. So if you want to change seats and come over here or whatever, be my guest. Um, let's see, my sobriety date is December 7th, 1964, and my home group is the Saturday Night Fever Group in uh, Tampa, Florida. And it's a great group, just like your group is. Let me tell you what... Um, I have semi in mind, because I never have anything really in mind when I start these things, but thinking about it last night, um, what I'm going to do is just give two talks. It's just like you're attending an AA talk. This is not a workshop or anything like that. There's going to be a lot of thoughts that I have about spirituality and AA and, of course, these are my own personal opinion. If I say anything that um, is something that your sponsor would disagree with, then listen to your sponsor. I mean, this is just my um, experience with spirituality and Alcoholics Anonymous and our 12 steps. And so what I plan on doing is uh, do two sessions, and we'll take a, about an hour and 15 minutes, something like that, and then it won't run into the afternoon and we'll be through by lunch. And uh, we'll take a 15-minute break in between and get um, our juices churning again. It's awful hard to sit that long. So that's what I have in mind. And the starting point that I was going to take was, I don't know why. Oh, no, I know what I want to do before I start that. And that was, uh, I didn't get to finish my story with Larry last night. (laughs) Everybody has a Franklin Williams story, and I wanted to share mine. Um, The first time I met Franklin, uh, that Larry was talking about Franklin from Olive Branch, Mississippi last night. What a great guy. So anyway, I was invited to talk, this is probably 25 years ago, I was talking in Hot Springs, Arkansas, as some ground up there. And uh, Franklin was introducing me. So we got to meet each other, and he seemed very nice at the time. And they had a meeting that was called the Leaders Speak. So each person that was introducing the speakers for the weekend were on this panel. And there was five of them, and they each talked for ten minutes. So they each gave a ten-minute talk. So I attended that, and I think Franklin was the third speaker. And he gave a nice little 10-minute pitch about his life and AA, and then he sat down, and then the other two speakers finished. And no sooner had they, and I was sitting out here about three rows back, and no sooner had they finished than he jumped up, and he started talking to me, and he started yelling, Sandy, I'm so sorry, don't leave, I want to apologize to you, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And of course, everybody is listening to this and wondering what is going on. And he comes down and he said, I, I just, I don't know how to, how that happened. I, I just feel awful. He said, I was up there talking and I could see that everything I was saying was going right over your head. And I just wanted, 
and I just want to apologize. <laughs> and that was the beginning of a great friendship. Um, I just thought that was brilliant. Anyway, the um, this is what I was thinking about last night. I was thinking about the fact that we talk about alcoholism being a threefold disease, mental, physical, and spiritual. And sometimes when you say that, you almost get the same mental picture of that as you do when you talk about uh, unity, service, and recovery. And you sort of see a three-legged stool that holds AA together. You know what I'm talking about? They're all equal. Unity, service, and recovery. But if you apply that same analogy to alcoholism and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you think you got a three-legged stool of mental, physical, and spiritual, I believe that we have totally the wrong picture. Because I think that all we have is a one-legged stool, and it's spiritual. And um, mental and physical, that's nice, but that won't keep us sober. Uh, when we look at, um, in the 10th step, I was going to read a few things that sort of lead into this. Let me just start with um, we agnostics, because this describes the illness and, and, and what I think the whole point of the steps is. So if you're new, and let me say this to the new person, if you're new, what this is why I'm doing this, these uh, talks, is that I hope that if there's someone new here, that as a result of these talks, one of you decides to take the action to get closer to your God. That would be my dream, that if that were to happen, because that's the most important thing that any of us can do. And I really think that's what the whole AA program is. And so when we try to look at this disease that we call mental, physical, and spiritual, let's look at some of the stuff out of our big book. And I, I, my, one of my favorite chapters is the chapter of the agnostic, because I think we're all agnostics when we get in here. And this is how it describes the disease in there, okay? It's a bizarre disease. It really is. It said, if when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, or if when drinking you have little control over the amount you take, you're probably an alcoholic. Now, what does that mean? If that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. What kind of an illness can that be? The only thing that can do anything about this illness is a spiritual experience. That's it. That's the only thing. Then later on he goes, if a mere code of morals or a better philosophy of life were sufficient to overcome alcoholism, many of us would have recovered long ago. But we found that such codes and philosophies did not save us no matter how much we tried. We could not wish to be moral. We could not wish, we could wish to be philosophically comforted. In fact, we could will these things with all our might, but the needed power wasn't there. Our human resources, as marshaled by the will, were not sufficient. They failed utterly. Lack of power, that was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live, 
and it had to be a power greater than ourselves, obviously. But where and how were we to find this power? Well, that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. That's it. In other words, what is the point of the whole program? What is this book for? It's to enable me to find a power greater than myself that can solve my problem. And then, of course, we read this at every meeting. The, our description of the alcoholic, the chapter of the agnostic, and our personal adventures before and after make clear what three pertinent ideas that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism, that God could and would provided he was sought. So there it is. We have a disease that only a spiritual experience can conquer. This, what a disease. This is, the medical people must be going crazy. I don't think we'd ever see that in a medical journey, a medical journal. Alcoholism, a disease only conquered by a spiritual experience. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's just everything being discovered about alcoholism. And it's knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. But it doesn't say anything in here about lack of knowledge. That was our dilemma. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? It says lack of power. That was our dilemma. God could and would if he were sought. And then the last thing I wanted to read was in our tenth step. And we've ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. For by this time, sanity will have returned. We seldom will be interested in liquor. If tempted, we recoil from it as a hot flame. We react sanely and normally, and we will find that this has happened automatically. This has happened automatically. We didn't figure it out. We didn't learn anything. It just happened automatically. We will see our new attitude towards liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That's the miracle of it. We're not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we have been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is our experience. That is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. It's easy to let up on our spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels. We are headed for trouble if we do, for alcohol is a subtle foe. We are not cured of alcoholism. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all our activities. How can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. These are thoughts which must go with us constantly. Those are wonderful words to try and understand what this disease is. The problem doesn't exist for us. It's been removed. We're in a position of neutrality. What we have is a daily reprieve contingent on our spiritual condition. 
What I think sobriety, spiritual sobriety, really looks like is, this is what it looks like. There's nothing for alcohol to fix. There's nothing for alcohol to fix. So it's real easy to stay sober when there's nothing for alcohol to fix. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's just, we always have all these reasons for drinking. But if, as we look at this in a spiritual condition, there wouldn't be any reasons. We would be, the problem wouldn't exist. We just wouldn't be thinking about it. Any more than I think about, um, well, I think I'll take a hammer and drive a spike through my nose. You know what I mean? I don't have that problem. I didn't get up this morning fighting the urge to take a nail and drive it through my nose. That problem doesn't exist for me, so I don't have to spend any time today avoiding buying hammers. <laughs> I don't have, you know what I'm saying? I don't have to do any of that. It's a, I don't have that problem. It doesn't exist. And the same with drinking. It honestly doesn't exist. I don't, it just isn't there for me to think about or worry about or do anything about. So I don't do anything about my alcohol problem. I just do something about my spiritual condition. Now, if I do that, then my other problems will be taken care of. And so many of us had faith and belief when we got here. But there's a big difference between that and conscious contact. You know what I mean? Well, I have faith that someday I'll have conscious contact. You know what I mean? I have, but we want to have conscious contact. That would be like having faith back in the drinking days that there's a bottle in the trunk. <laughs> you know what I mean? But that isn't going to sustain us. We got to get the bottle and drink it. And so it, it can only get us so far. And that's what the action, in my judgment, is all about. And so we hear some of these things. I was thinking about um, candy bars. You know, they talk about candy bars in the big book. I, I think it's in the family afterward or somewhere in there. And how it's recommended for alcoholics. And when I got sober, that my sponsor came with a candy bar. And then at meetings, they always talked about, keep a supply of candy, keep a supply of candy, and put honey in your uh, tea and coffee, and just keep pouring that in. And then as the years evolved, and they found that there was a hypoglycemia connection with alcoholism, <laughs> you don't hardly hear about candy bars. Okay? So, let's imagine, just for discussion purposes, that Bill Wilson was allowed to come back for three or four years to see what AA looks like today. So he's back and he's looking around and he and he's going, hey, what happened to the candy bars? <laughs> I see there's a lot of young people. I see that there's a lot of discussion meetings, more than we had, and I see this and that, but what about the candy bar? Oh, Phil, we found out about hypoglycemia and we're not handing the candy bars out. And oh, okay, that's interesting. So a couple of years go by, and then I can see him say, making this observation. He says, you know something, fellas? I've been watching this candy bar thing. And it occurs to me that just about the same number of people are staying sober without the candy bars as they were when we were handing out the candy bars. Those that don't eat candy and 
work a spiritual program, get sober. Those that do eat candy and work a spiritual program, get sober. And so we have these things um, that we talk about, like hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. The reason I'm bringing all these up is that they're very helpful and they're important, but our sobriety can never be found in there. If, you know, when we say, don't get too hungry, angry, lonely, and tired, it's as if you were never hungry, angry, lonely, and tired, your sobriety would be guaranteed. But you could be well-rested, have a full stomach, live with 12 other people, and not be angry and still get drunk if our spiritual condition wasn't right. And on the other hand, if we had good spiritual contact, people go on fast. And they go off by themselves for long periods of time and have very little sleep and they're just working on their spiritual condition. So what I'm trying to say is that um, spiritual condition is the name of the game. And that's what the steps are all about and that's what the program is all about. Um, that sentence that I read in the 10th step, what we really have is a daily reprieve and it doesn't say contingent on our mental condition. And it doesn't say we have a daily reprieve contingent on our physical condition. It says that we have a daily reprieve contingent on our spiritual condition. And that, to me, that's where first things first comes from. Always go to the spiritual condition first, no matter what the problem is. And then come back and look and see what the problems are. And you, we may find that a whole bunch of them have been removed. It just happens. It just happens. But our minds don't see the world that way. See, the problems that hit us don't have spiritual labels on them. Matter of fact, we hardly ever have a spiritual problem. We just have money problems, relationship problems, sex problems. Loneliness problems, anger problems, fear problems. We have all these things. And so they never go. They don't have a label that says, secretly, this is spiritual. We're just disguising it as sex. <laughs> secretly, this is, this is not a money problem. This is a spiritual problem. You know, so as you look at your inventory list of all the problems you might have, there is no spiritual problems on there. So we don't go to the spiritual solution because our mind, our intellect has been trained to analyze these things and to visualize some sort of a solution and then we go after that and I can remember saying to myself yeah this spiritual stuff when I was brand new I remember going well I gotta believe it these old timers they're really they're into it and they, they're really doing well but I think it's something that I'll save until I'm older because uh it looks like it deprives you of all the fun there is in the world. You know what I mean? So, and I like action and I like excitement and I don't see any massage parlors on the spiritual path, you know. <laughs> so you don't want to straighten out too soon. Right? So I'm just going to have a great life and then 
right before it's time to go, I'll straighten out and <laughs> slide under the door and I'll get into heaven. And of course, um, that was just such a misconception of what's going on, but that's the way it looked to me. And here comes my first digression. Speaking of heaven, you know, I, I don't know if you've heard this one, but um, after you've been sober a long, long, long time, you, you really don't have drunk dreams, at least not like I remember when I was new. You know, oh, I dreamt I got drunk and this happened and that happened. But we have nightmares. So I'll give you an old-timer's nightmare. Okay, you ready? Here's the dream. You've gone to bed, you're an old-timer, you've been working this pro, you are just one fine old-timer. <laughs> so you go to sleep, and here's your dream. You're dead. That's the dream. <laughs> but you're going up. So that's a very comforting feeling. You're going up, and by, by God, it's just like they told you. Here's some clouds, there's music, and pretty soon there's this gate, it's gold, it's really something. There's somebody, obviously St. Peter. Big grin on her face, right? And we're coming up there and, hi. Name, please. Um, Sandy Beach. You're not on the list. <laughs> I'm not on the list. No, you're not on the list. See that escalator down? It's right over there. Well, actually, St. Pete, that's just a nickname. My, my real name is Richard Beach. Yeah, here it is. Richard Sandy Beach. You're not on the list. You're not on it. Well, geez, St. Pete, I mean, I know I did a lot of bad things. I did a lot of stuff. I mean, I'm, I owned up to it. I was really bad. I hurt my mother, hurt my father, hurt my kids, hurt my family. I, it was just awful. But St. Pete, like 37 years ago, I straightened out, man. I mean, I, and then I've been trying. I've been working this program. I've been, I've, I've been sponsoring, started a group, I read the book, I read, pray, 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 pray to your father all the time. <laughs> Pray to your uncle, I mean. Pray to your uncle all the time. He said, your name is not on the list. Oh, man, this is awful. So I start walking over there, and I go, I come back, and I go, I forgot to mention something, St. Pete. I, uh, I'm a personal friend of Bill Wilson's. He didn't make it either. <laughs> what? And neither did Dr. Bob. What? So I go, I'm totally dejected now. And I walk over the stairs and I go, God damn, what is this? So I come back and I go, what's the deal up here? You guys don't like alcoholics? Is that it? No alcoholics in heaven? Is that what it is? No alcoholics allowed in heaven. Is that it? And St. Pete looked at me and he said, oh, no. Everybody from rational recovery gets in. And I just went, whoa, and I woke up with it. Freaking out. Just a terrible, terrible, terrible dream. Um, so anyway, 
I, I was talking about how I wanted to straighten out later on. And um, it seemed to make a lot of sense back then when I was a lot younger. Because I couldn't imagine what was in store for me. I couldn't imagine that everything that I thought I wanted wasn't what I really wanted after all. And I'm sure that's true for a lot of you, where you came to AA and you knew all the things that were missing in your life. And if someone had bet you uh, or said, I'm going to offer you a million dollars if this, if you'll just believe this, that I know you like yachting and I know you like golf and I know you like women and I know you like this, but in a few years, going to meetings is going to be your favorite thing. You going to believe that? I think most of us would go, hey, pal, I don't think you understand me. I mean, to make a statement like that, that going to meetings is going to be one of my favorite things in my life. But it turned out it was true. And a lot of things that appear to be true aren't true anymore. And a lot of things that I thought was the way the world was organized just aren't true anymore. Because the journey from the material world over into the spiritual world is filled with paradoxes. And everything is the backwards from what it was before. And sometimes we see this if we're working with somebody who's still drinking. And we're talking with his family and we're going, well... Uh, we've given them, we've planted the seed. It's all we can do right now. Say some prayers and we'll just hope that his turn will come. And uh, so they call up and they go, well, something awful happened. He just had his fourth DWI and he's in the hospital with a broken leg. And secretly we go, yeah, now we're getting there. Now he's got a chance. Because we know that that was good that that happened. And the family thinks it was bad that that happened. And then he gets out of the hospital and his leg gets recovered and we're sort of waiting around. And all of a sudden we get a phone call from the family and they go, God, you're not going to believe this wonderful news. He went back to work and his boss gave him a promotion and a bonus. And we go, oh man, there he goes. Isn't that too bad that that happened? Now he doesn't have a chance. (laughs) So we're looking at the same events that they're looking at, entirely different. Because we know what the dynamics is. We know what's going on inside. And we know that in order to win, we've got to lose. We've got to get down to the point where we get the white handkerchief out and wave it in total surrender, just like the Japanese did. Absolutely unconditional. We're here. You tell us what you want us to do. And um, that's what has to happen to all of us. And there's many other things that um, we find in the spiritual path that are filled with paradoxes. One of them is um, how to achieve independence. And that's done by becoming totally dependent on a higher power. And that seems like you couldn't be talking out of, how could that possibly be? You you win by surrendering and you get independence by becoming totally dependent. Well, the fact is that it's just an illusion that we're independent before we become spiritual. Before we become spiritual and have a power greater than ourselves in our lives, 
we're totally jerked around by our character defects. They're in charge. We're not in charge of anything. Well, I think I'll stay at work all afternoon. And Lust says, what about the redhead? <laughs> so we go into the boss, tell a lie, and we're gone. Now, we planned on staying at work. I mean, we have all, every one of these things, and our drinking especially. Well, I want to be a good father. I want to stay home. We have these intentions. We have this. And our character defects just take us everywhere. And then we come in and surrender all this. There's no way I can handle this. As, as I read that sentence about we could wish to have a moral philosophy. We could wish to be good. But it didn't do us any good. And we come in here and we find out that once we're willing to surrender and turn all this over to a power greater than ourselves, this power pushes these character defects down so that they aren't harassing us. And we'll talk about that in the um, seventh step, sixth and seventh step, where these are pushed down so they're not bothering us. And that's what freedom is. Um, then trying to have a purpose in life. Did you ever try to figure out what your purpose was? I must have changed my purpose about 50 times as I went along through life. Well, it must be the purpose must be to win in athletics. I was listening to Larry's talk last night. I'm sure that was his purpose. Was, and, and you're driven and you go and then you succeed beyond your wildest dreams and you still have a feeling inside that you haven't accomplished your purpose. There's still something missing. And what is that? Well, that's what I think spirituality is all about. And my favorite story about leading into all of this, believe me, I am going to get to the steps. <laughs> but it's not going to be one of these things where here's step one, dee, 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 like that. Maybe we'll have some stories and things like that. Um, I like to th read the big book and think about the history of AA and try to imagine God's part in it. And as we do that, all you can see is God. You can't hardly see anything else. You can see these human beings that were the, that were chosen to be the messengers that would, that started our program. But you can see that they didn't have anything to do with this. The circumstances and this power and these, this chain of events just occurred. And especially after Bill went off with his ideas about how AA ought to be and he was blocked at every turn with his chain of drunk tanks and paid missionaries and all that stuff. And, and it ended up he couldn't raise any money and, you know, all his ideas for the program just were blocked. And it turned out the way it was supposed to turn out. And so I think as I look at it, God's handiwork to rescue you and I probably started in around 1912 or 1913 when a group of teenagers were assembled up in Manchester, Vermont in the summertime. A lot of them were there just for the summer. And, um, of course, the first one was Bill Wilson, who just was down from East Dorset, Vermont, to attend Manchester Academy. And then um, over from Albany, New York, where his father was the mayor and a big shot in politics, almost uh, was considered to be the vice 
presidential candidate in, in, at one time. Didn't make it, but he was up for that. And um, his son, Ebby, came to uh, Manchester to uh, where they had a summer home and hung out with other um, kids his age or slightly older. And, of course, he got to meet Bill Wilson. And then up from Rhode Island was a millionaire's son. The Hazard family was big industrialists. They had plants around the United States. And their son, Roland, came up with them to their summer place in Manchester. And then up from Brooklyn, New York, was the Burnham family, Dr. Burnham and his wife and his lovely daughter, Lois. And they all met each other, these kids, in social settings, maybe in a bar, maybe here, maybe there. But they got to know each other. And there began a chain of events that unfolded as a result of that that brought us AA. And the first one in that chain of events, and this is why I'm telling this story so that I can lead up to the um, Dr. Young letter exchange between Bill and that comes came later on. And the first one of these was Roland Hazard, and his drinking got out of control. And his father wanted him to take over the business. He had taken over quite a bit of it, but his drinking was so bad that it was getting where he might have to be institutionalized. And they had tried, he himself and his family had tried everything this country had to offer. And so they, someone said, there's the best psychiatrist in the world is in Switzerland. His name is Carl Jung. If you go there, we're sure that something can be done for Roland. And so he went there and he spent a year with Dr. Young. And Dr. Young tried all of his techniques to cause this profound personality change. And at the end of that time, he said to Roland, well, that's everything that I know how to do, I've done for you. You understand the situation. If you start drinking again, this could possibly be over for you. Yes, I understand, doctor. Well, good luck. We'll see you. And he made it as far as Paris where someone asked him the wrong question. They said, would you like a drink? And he said, yes. <laughs> and uh, so he just got totally ruined again and came back to Dr. Young and he said, Dr. Young, look, I'm all messed up. I'm, in, I'm It's hopeless. I'm, I'm in total despair. What am I going to do? And here's where I think, where I just read in chapter five, where it said, no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. So if you think symbolically, Dr. Young certainly symbolized all there was in terms of human power. And this is what this concentration of human power said to Roland. There's nothing I can do for you. How's that for pretty definitive? I am the leading human power on the planet, and I can do nothing for you. That is going to cause a surrender. And it did. I mean, that just took the floor right out from under him. He had never heard that before. You mean nothing can be done? No. Nothing can be done for you. And then he added, Now I have heard of a few cases like yours where people have had profound spiritual experiences and have been able to live a happy life. 
If I was you, I would try to find one of those profound spiritual experiences. And all right. And guess what? Roland was suddenly motivated to find a profound spiritual experience. The week before, he wasn't interested in profound spiritual experiences. But he just got motivated because the ultimate in human power just said, there's nothing I can do for you. And that's what hopelessness is, and that's when we begin to win. And so he went out with a totally open mind. And so where am I going to find something like this? And of course, <clears throat> the Oxford movement was incredibly popular. It's quite normal that someone <clears throat> looking for a spiritual experience would get into one of these Oxford groups, and he did. And lo and behold, he got sober and became very active in this, including... Um, using his home up in Manchester to help to hold Oxford meetings in to pass the message, the spiritual message to other people. And right about this time, the second in our cast of characters crashed and burned, and that was Ebby. Ebby has been just alienating his family with one episode after another, and finally, after driving his car drunk into a farmhouse and went through the living room into the kitchen on a Saturday morning and came right up to the kitchen table in the car and asked the lady uh, of the home if he could have a cup of coffee. <laughs> so they called the cops and there's, a, you know, all this. So the town is going, you know, this guy is really causing a lot of trouble. And shortly thereafter, Debbie had one of those days where you, you ever sit around and you go, man, this house needs painting. You remember all the times you'd think of stuff that needed to be done back in the drink? This house needs painting. I'm going to go get a bottle of booze and some paint and a ladder and some brushes. And so off he went and came back and started painting the house. He got about 10 square feet painted and then went over and sat down and imagined the house painted. You know what I mean? You look at that and some birds came over and crapped all over the paint. Got him upset, he went in, got a couple shotguns, and guarded the paint as it dried. <laughs> Any bird that came near his yard, bam! You know, so the neighbors are hearing this, and gunfire, and it's a war starting. He said, get the sheriff, off he goes, he's in front of the judge, and the judge goes, I'm sorry, but you, we're going to have to send you away for a while. Everybody's on my back. And... Um, he made one phone call, and he knew Roland Hazard was a very distinguished family. And Roland came down, talked to the judge, and said, would you release him to me personally? Well, the judge knew that was safe, that nobody would criticize him for that. And Roland took him off to the Oxford movement, and Evie got sober and got very active. And then they were transferred down to New York City. Um helping out with the main Oxford group, Sam Shoemaker, down in uh, New York. And some period of time went by, and Evie thought about his old drinking buddy, Bill, and he went, paid the call on Bill, had that wonderful Saturday morning in Brooklyn, told Bill about what had happened to him. Bill was very agnostic. Bill had been brought up in the Christian church, but he didn't believe that Christ was divine, didn't believe any of this stuff. He was just, yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, but Evie said, Bill, you could choose your own concept of God. You just have to surrender. Stop worrying about what it is. And later, after his next drunk in the hospital, Bill had this great spiritual experience after he surrendered. Went off to Akron six months later and met Dr. Bob. And the two of them got the program going. And off they went. And then AA took off. And, of course, now it's enormous. 
So a lot of years go by, and suddenly Bill realizes that he never closed the loop with Dr. Young. You know what I mean? He never really said, Dr. Young, you know what you started? And so he wrote this letter to him, and it was a good thing he did, but it wasn't long after that that Dr. Young passed away. And he wrote him saying, Dear Dr. Young, I don't know if you remember Roland Hazard. He was a patient of yours, but you did this, and as a result, this happened, the Oxford, and now we have AA. It's in all these countries. We owe you a tremendous debt of gratitude. Now, I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what it said. Dr. Young writes back, oh, my God, I'm so happy to find out. I often wondered what happened to Mr. Hazard. It said, what a pleasure to find out. As you may know, um, I can tell you now what I was trying to do with Mr. Hazard was to cause a spiritual transformation, but we couldn't use those terms back then. They would have laughed me out of psychiatry if I said anything about spirituality, but now it's okay to talk about that. And, of course, we all know Young was very spiritual and, and just saw the spirituality of man and everything. And so he said, that's what I was trying to cause. Because as I have looked at alcoholics, now we're back to this sentence that I read at the very start. You may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience can conquer. And Dr. Young went on to say that what he thought alcoholics had, and this I'm paraphrasing, was a very strong longing for God. Now, what if that was our problem? And it came disguised in many other ways, like lousy childhood, irate wife, all these other things, no money, terrible illness as a child, lost my husband in Vietnam, lost my son to this. All these things that we think are making us unhappy and unable to get a grasp on the world. When in reality, this is such an exciting way to look at it. Our real problem is we just miss the hell out of God. That's what it is. We just It's missing in our lives. It's just such an emptiness. And it's missing in everybody's lives. But maybe alcoholics feel it more. We just feel it, and we want to fix this. And you know what fixed it? Booze. It fixed it just the same as the program fixes us, from the inside out. Booze didn't transform any of our reality. It didn't make us richer, handsomer, or anything like that. It just was powerful enough to go in and make us feel like that problem was gone made us feel like we were complete for the first time in our lives. And it was such an exciting experience for us that we were willing to pay the ultimate price in order to keep it. And for the non-alcoholic, they're not willing to pay the ultimate price because it wasn't the ultimate experience. It wasn't the transforming experience that it was for us. So, just pursuing this, just we're just operating on this. If this is your problem, as it said in the chapter, you may be suffering from an illness that only a spiritual experience can conquer. Well, then what is the illness? It has to be the absence of God. If the answer is 
to allow this power to come into our lives, then the problem is we miss that power. We're very unhappy and incomplete. How many of us went around going, I don't know what it is, but there's something missing in my life. I can just feel it. There's something, I'm incomplete as I am now. I don't have, and then of course, our mind is trained to look around and see what it is. I know what it is. I'm not in shape. I'm not in shape. And then we go out and we get in shape, we lose weight, we're eating a perfect diet. We, we just, we're treating this temple, the body. And we get, and we get all through and we look in the mirror and we go, man, that is, that's, I can't believe that's me. Unfortunately, it's still there. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's still there. I make this big muscle and it's still there. Well, it must not be being in shape. It must be money. I just don't have enough money to be comfortable. And then we chase that. And we get maybe we get some people, some of us get wealthy. Some of us dream about getting wealthy. But it still doesn't fix anything. And then I get promoted. Maybe if I had my own company. Maybe if I was this. I know how many of us have done this. I know what it is. I need to get married. So we run out, and now we got two kids, we got the car, we got the station wagon, we got this, we got that, and it's still there. And the only thing that ever fixed it was alcohol. So there's something that needs to be fixed, and that's what I call alcoholism, myself. This is just my own personal understanding, that it is a disease that only a spiritual experience can conquer. So if that is the situation, then we have these 12 steps. So what are they designed to do? Well, let's cheat and go to the end. Did you ever read the end of the book first? I wonder how this thing ends. Holy cow. And then we go back and read it. Well, how does it end? How about step 11? Conscious contact. How about step 12? Spiritual awakening. That's how the book ends. That is the point of the whole thing, is to have a personal contact. Just you. You have it. And then there's you and this new energy source that you have contact with. And that spiritual awakening. And so that's the end of the book. That's the point of doing all this. And that's what Bill said. The purpose of this book is to enable us to find a personal God. And so that's what I see the steps as. So every step that we talk about is a God step. You know what I mean? You can label them all the different ways you want. Oh, an inventory step, a past step, a future step, a beep pop But if you think about it, they're all God steps because this is the path that can enable us to achieve conscious contact and spiritual awakening. And, of course, we talked about what Roland had to do when he saw Dr. Young, and that was surrender. Surrender, surrender, surrender. So who's our biggest enemy? As we start going down this thing, I'll tell you who our biggest enemy is. It isn't the outside world. It's not our boss. It's not our wife or our husband. It's not our children. It's not that. It's our ego. Our ego goes, oh, excuse me? What, what's that? What are you talking about now? God. No, you don't want God in your life. Let me tell you, you want me in your life. I've been here all along. I'm you, man. I am you. You are your ego. I remember thinking, I am my character defects. Did you ever think that way? Now, who are you? I am my character defects. You know what I mean? And if you take away my character defects, I'll be nobody. 
I don't know if you thought crazy like that, but that's how I thought. I'll be the hole in the donut. Remember that in the 12 and 12? Who will I be with no character defects? I better save some just so I can be somebody. <laughs> that's the ego. It's running in. It does not want anything to do with God. Because that would mean God would be in charge. And especially when, you, when the ego sees you reading these steps, turn your life over entirely. Get rid of all character defects. Kill ego. Kill ego. You know that my friend Hal Marley talks about that in the discussion meeting and the topic is getting rid of ego and everybody's talking about, oh, you got to kill your ego, kill your ego. And some new person is listening to this. About halfway through the meeting, somebody comes in late and sits down next to the new person and says, what's the topic? And the new person said, suicide. <laughs> I mean, because ego, that's who I am, man. You know, there's, there's, there's nobody beyond ego. But there is. That's the spiritual person. This is the real person. This is the person that comes from our heart. This is... This is who we really want to get in touch with. This is the exciting person to know. This is the true spiritual being that everybody is. And we may get a glimpse of this. Early on, I don't know if this has happened to you, but um, you might have two months, three months sobriety. You're sitting at a meeting, Mr. or Miss Self-Centered, <laughs> you know, or just, that's us. And you hear everybody talking about loving everybody else, and you're going... I don't know what the hell that is. <laughs> you know, you just you hear it, but you have no idea what it is. They look sincere, but you don't know what they're really talking about. Anyway, you're sitting there, and in comes a new guy or a new gal. You can spot it. They're shaky, and they're looking around. They go over to get a cup of coffee. They get a half a cup, and it spills all over by the coffee pot. And so they put it down. They turn red. And you're watching and you're going, oh man, do I know what that feels like? And so they don't have coffee. They just go over and sit down at the table and sweating and they're twisting and nervous and all this. And you're watching them because you were just there two months ago. But there's something about this person that you are secretly cheering for. This is a part of you that just hasn't come out very much. And you just find yourself going... God, I hope they make it. And at the end of the meeting, you almost go over and shake their hand. You're just not there yet, but you almost did it. Next time you will, but you're, you know, there's this something building inside of you. And then during the week, you actually thought about them once or twice. I wonder how that guy, I wonder how that gal is. I hope they come back to the meeting. And the next week you come there and you're actually looking around and they're not there and you're a little disappointed. And about 10 minutes into the meeting, they come in. And it's obvious they've stayed sober all week. And they go over and they get a third of a cup without spilling it and get it all the way to the table. <laughs> and they sit down with it with sort of a satisfied look on their face. And something inside of you says, Yay! Yay for somebody else? What is that? Well, if you're new, that's who you are. That's what the steps are going to go in and pull out. There is so much of that inside waiting to be released to break through your ego and come out 
shining. And the way we do it is to fight this ego by surrendering. In the beginning, we need circumstances to help us. We need a DWI. And then we can go to the ego, look, I got a DWI, I'm going to lose my license. I got to try to say, hey, there's this struggle going on between the two of us. And so we come in and they explain to us we're powerless, that that's our problem. It's not ignorance, it's not childhood, it's not any of those things. It's that we're powerless. And are you willing to put up the flag? And we do the best that we can. It's impossible to surrender 100%. I suppose if you could do it, you could have an experience like Bill Wilson had, where you have a hot flash and boom, God appears and a drinking problem is lifted away. Most of us, that's not going to happen that way. It's going to be the garden variety. It's going to happen over a period of every couple of months. We'll notice something else and something else, and our friends will notice. And they'll say to us, Alec, what's, well, are you on a diet? Alec, what's going on? What is happening with you? Your co-workers, what are you doing? And what is happening is the very life of life is being breathed back into us. And our souls are being nourished and it's starting to show up in our face and in our eyes. And people are starting to see it. And they're seeing a clarity there that was never there before. And this is the power greater than ourselves coming in as a result of us opening the door. There's no way it can get in unless we open the door of surrender. And that is the most important beginning to the whole thing. You can be sober for five years and have very little serenity in the program, not hardly working. We're analyzing, did I do an inventory? Did I make enough amends? Did I do this and I do that? And guess what our literature suggests? You never surrendered 100% in the first step. And if you don't do that, the rest of it is irrelevant because we got one foot out there and one foot in here. I'm almost powerless. I'm almost an alcoholic like the rest of them. I almost need a sponsor. I almost need to do the steps. I almost need to go to meetings. And I'm almost going to get sober. And almost getting sober is like almost having a parachute. <laughs> you know, I almost took one of those things as you're whistling through the air. I almost grabbed one of those things. You're not much better off than the guy who never heard the word. And so that this is so important, if you're new, is to go back. Are you holding back anywhere? Do you see any difference in your drinking than everybody else's? Do you see any difference in your surrender? Do you have any question that you have some reservations that someday you may be able to sip a little wine? That'll kill us. That'll ruin the entire spiritual program. And you'll wonder, you won't think God exists. Well, I've been trying this. I've been trying praying. I've been trying this. None of that will work if the door is still shut. And that's what the surrender does is open this thing. And then once it opens it, we can start this thing that I read out of the second step of the chapter of the agnostic. And we begin this wonderful process of changing our mind. Alcoholics, when they in the beginning, changing the mind for a new alcoholic is like turning the Queen Mary around in Tampa Bay. It takes about 50 tugboats. <laughs> takes all night, and then finally, the alcoholic goes, I changed my mind. You know, like it took all that effort. <laughs> you want to call a press conference. I changed my mind. <laughs> I remember my sponsor, one time when we were debating things back and forth, and, and, and um, 
I finally said to him, okay, Bill, you're right. And he said, no, you're wrong. <laughs> I said the same thing. He said, no, it's not. You say it. Okay. <laughs> it wouldn't even come out. I'm wrong. I can't hear you. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. It was so hard to... Did I shut that off? Yep. How about now? Uh-oh, Lee. Here we go. Less animation. Okay, we're going to go about five more minutes, then we'll take a break. Um, so this changing mind process in step two is so vital. We want to hold on to these old ideas about God. We want to hold on to these, this and that. And it's there it is. They haven't worked. They, our old ideas about God, about spirituality, about who we are, none of that has worked. And so what we're doing here is we're just going to open our minds to what is being suggested by the program. We're going to just say, all right, let's see what happens. I'm going to give this a try and I'm going to see what happens. And so we have all different kinds of backgrounds that we bring in here. We may be extremely religious and still getting drunk every day. And this is a big mystery. Bill talks about it in the 12 and 12. Well, it has to do with the quality of faith rather than the quantity. Whatever our background, those ideas just have to be set aside in the second step so that we can finally change our mind about this higher power and make this transition in the second step to open-mindedness. And once we do that, we're ready to make the biggest decision about a spiritual path, which is to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand it. This is a decision. Nothing gets turned over in the third step. It's kind of like deciding to get a college degree. Now what's left? Four years of hard work, and then you get a college degree. You see what I'm saying? And so made a decision to turn our will and our life. Now we're going to do all the work and the rest of the steps to get this turned over. Why can't we turn it over? Because our ego doesn't want us to turn it over. We're going to have to chop that thing apart piecemeal. We're going to have to go in there, character defect by character defect, and pry this thing open so that we can open this channel. And the concept that helped me the most about the third step because my intellect wanted to stay in charge. Well, who's going to be in charge? Who's going to figure my, I'm going to turn my life out. How do I going to know where to go? What am I going to do? And it was explained to me, we're going to go beyond the intellectual level to the intuitive level. That's what we're trying to accomplish when we say we're turning our lives over. We still, it still comes through us, but it comes through our intuitions instead of our intellect. Our intellect is controlled by our own thinking. So when we use our intellect and we go, what should I do in this situation? Then we go, well, let's see. If I do this, I do that. If I do this, I do that. You see what I see? We weigh the odds. And we figure it out. And then we make a decision about what we ought to do. But someone could say, just as they did to me when I went through flight school, they said, okay, you've learned how to fly this plane now. And you can land it. You can take it off. And you've done this. And you've done that. Now we're going to do it when there's no sky visible. We're going to go up when it's IFR. The clouds are so thick you can't see the propeller anymore. 
And don't be worried. You shouldn't be worried about this at all because we have this radio beacon at the end of the runway. And if you go up and you dial in the right frequency in your little radio, and back then it was the little AM thing with the uh, A and the N. You remember that low frequency? Those are the older pilots. And if you dial in the right frequency and you listen and you properly position the plane to come in on this beam, you will come in right between the two mountains and not get killed. And when you get down right at 300 feet, the runway will pop out of the clouds and there it'll be. Now, I didn't say to them, you want me to believe in a freaking radio beam on the end of a runway? You want me to turn my life over to a radio beam? Are you kidding? What if it, what if it doesn't work? I'm going to fly into the mountain. I'm not a radio, but I didn't say any of that. I just said, what's the frequency, please? <laughs> Went right up, dialed that in, mountains all around, just came right down. Boy, I put my life on the line to something made by GE. <laughs> You know what I mean? I just, hey, I'll be happy to put my life on the line for that. And then I come in here and they go, how about turning your life over to God? God is this wonderful, huge power, created this whole universe. It is inside of you. It is the most powerful signal you can ever have. If you will take the action to get in touch with this, you can be guided through the rest of your life. How do you like that? Oh, uh, I don't think so. I don't think, I don't think we want to be doing that. I don't think that's... That doesn't sound like a good plan at all. I don't think... I don't think I want to do that at all. Well, you're screwed. Because that's where us alcoholics are. See, there isn't any other plan. you got to do it. We gotta try this. And so that's what spirituality is all about. Is to take us out. We made the unconditional surrender. Then we came to believe that there's gonna be something. Now we're deciding how can we get in touch with whatever this is so that I can be guided. Now how are we guided? We're guided through our intuitions. We, we struggle with problems. You ever struggle with a problem? Then finally you surrender it. You go to a meeting. You talk to a newcomer. You really should be home working on this. This is a very crucial problem. And you go to the meeting, and you talk to the newcomer, and you maybe take them out for a coffee afterward. Now you don't even have any time to worry about this problem. You come home, you're just about ready to go to bed, and it suddenly occurs to you that the answer to the problem is this. Just was given. Just seemed to appear. You know, you can come to rely on that. You can just come to expect it. Just, well, I got this terrible problem. I guess I'll go to a meeting, take some new guy out for coffee, and when I come home, there it'll be. It's amazing that this, but this is what turning it over is. It is to turn over our willfulness, our self-centeredness, and all of those things in order to establish this contact. We are at Quarter after, so how about at uh, 10.30?
Let's all get some coffee, stretch, walk around. We'll come back in at 10.30, and then we'll wrap it all up. Thank you. We're alcoholics. You know what I mean? It's a fatal disease. So that we have a gun at the back of our head going, uh, you're going to keep working on becoming God-centered, or I pull the trigger. And that's our gift compared to the people that don't have a gun at the back of their head. I don't know how they get it done. They're doing it voluntarily. It just occurs to them, I ought to become spiritual. Whereas you and I, we're going to do this and we're going to suffer dire consequences. There's a place, and I forget where it is, in the, <laughs> the 12 and 12, we're going to fall by the wayside. You ever see that sentence? Sounds like a bad place to me. <laughs> also sounds biblical. I think Bill must have got that out of the Bible. Fall by the wayside. Like, oh my God, not the wayside. <laughs> Anything but the wayside. <laughs> I'm not even sure what it is. <clears throat> but I know I don't want to be there. So this is the struggle. This is the decision in this third step. And of course, um, why are we trying to do this? And you know what I mean? Why are we trying to do this third step? And then you look at that third step prayer. So that I may achieve a victory and help others. Already, the selfishness is going away. It's not even so that I'll be happy. It's so that my victory over myself, over my character defect, will inspire the next new person to try it. Because this is so common. You know, sometimes we have new people come in here and they get sober and they immediately want to become alcohol counselors. And we put it down a little bit. Oh, yeah, everybody wants to become an alcohol counselor. But you know what? There's something beautiful in that. This is what Bill Wilson felt the second after he had that spiritual experience. He wanted to run out and sober all the drunks up in the thing. When spiritual transformations take place, part of the transformation is the desire to give it away. It's just, it just comes with it. It's just automatic with the territory. And you find that in um, the Oxford movement was the same thing. That Frank Buckman had this big spiritual experience and he just raced around trying to give, share it. Okay, let's start little groups. I gotta share this. I gotta show you. I gotta show you. So it, 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 it comes with the transformation. It's this desire to pass it on. So anyway, it, it, it why can't we just do it? Why can't we just turn it over? Why can't we allow this transformation to take place? Well, it turns out that there's some problems in, in accomplishing this, and I like to think about them by using the prayer of St. Francis. Let's, let's just imagine that turning our will and our lives over to the care of God is opening a channel like St. Francis writes about. Make me a channel of thy peace so that I can bring all these things. You know, where there's darkness, I can bring light. Where there's sadness, I can bring joy. So where there's wrong, I can bring forgiveness. Where there's error, I can bring truth. In other words, I want this channel to be opened so that everything can flow out. And notice that when we talk about spirituality, we're talking about opening a channel so that things can flow out from us. 
Whereas intellectually we feel, I need stuff to flow in. My problem is I don't have enough. Yeah, right? That's what intellect is. Another one of those paradoxes. I need more money. I need, I need. And then we go, you don't need anything. You need to open this channel so that you can flow out. What you're experiencing isn't those things that you think it is. What you're experiencing is you're blocked. You're blocked from your true nature being able to flow out. And it's like all of the water that flows into a dead sea. It's wonderful water. It's, it's just the most wonderful water in the world. And if that was God's energy flowing in, if it doesn't flow out, it doesn't exist. It doesn't do anything. It, and, and we feel there is no God. I don't feel it. I don't experience it. I don't experience So this channel has to be opened in order to allow it to go out. So what's blocking it? Well, if you use the analogy of the Suez Canal, you remember when they sank all those ships in there and blocked it and do all that many, many years ago, and then they had to go in and clear it? Well, think about that as your channel that we're trying to open is blocked with character defects. There's greed, a great big boulder sitting in the middle, and here's lust over here, and envy, and anger, and fear. So nothing can come through. And if nothing can come through, it doesn't exist. And that's why we have this hardest time. You know, I want to believe in God. I have faith. I, I can see. But until it flows through, it's a theory. It's just a comforting theory. But it hasn't penetrated yet so that we can go, now it's a reality. It's not a theory anymore. This is a reality. So really, in the beginning, we really stay sober on other people's energy. You know what I mean? Other people's spirituality, the people that came before us. And, and, and we get inspired by it. And we just go, God, I know it's real. I can feel it from them. I can feel it. And eventually, we're going to have to rely on our own. So how are we going to open up this channel? Well, we're going to have to find out what these blockages are and get them the heck out of the way. And that's the point of an inventory. And uh, there's a whole bunch of sheets up here, and they're, they're, we're not going to work on them or anything, but I want everybody to take one when you go. They're wonderful. Bob Darrell of Bob D. of Las Vegas prepared these. And they're right out of the big book, Resentments, Fears, Sex Relationships, the whole deal on the mechanics of a four-step inventory. In other words, how do I list all these blockages and how do I take a look at them and how do I get them ready to be lifted out? How do I mechanically go through this? And so be sure and take one of these at the end of the meeting. Uh, be helpful with somebody new that you're, you may already have them but I highly recommend them. And I think we have, Fred was nice enough to make some more copies, and I think we have enough to go around. So I want to talk about the dynamics of this. There's the mechanics. I'm not going to go through how to do a fourth step, but I want to talk about, because so many of us have guilt. Guilt, I don't know about you, but guilt was one of mine. And uh, in the pamphlet, the members I view, by McGinnis. I don't know if you've read that. Members I view of AA with the eyeball on the front. If you haven't read that pamphlet, yeah, it is really cool. I think in the old days we had better pamphlets. Uh-oh, is General Service representative around? I don't know what's going on up there, but I was at a meeting the other night and there were two pamphlets. 
Oh, I shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> and here's what I swear to God. First pamphlet said is AA for you. You know what the second pamphlet said? Is AA for me. So I said, well, I wonder what the difference between is AA for you and is AA for me. So I looked in there and there was no difference. It's just that one had a better title. <laughs> Figure that one out. Um, oh, so the dynamics of this and the guilt and McGinnis's thing, yeah, and he says the guilt was the first to come and the last to go of the of character defects, and it's it's connected with pride. The prideful person is inordinately big and good, and the guilty person is inordinately bad and rotten. But they're both pride. They're both. There's an arrogance to guilt. Real arrogance. Who are you to say you're worse than everybody else? <laughs> you don't know me, man. I'm the worst. I'm terrible. I'm the rottenest, rottenest. No, you're just arrogant. You just think you're rotten. But you're not. You're just average. So there's a lot of things that have to be uh, accounted for. And guilt will make it seem like it's our fault that we have all these things. And that feeling can be oppressive. And the 12 and 12 is really helpful to this because it says, guess where these character defects came from? Da, 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 da. They were God-given. That's where they came from. They came from instinctual drives that were born in us just like they're born in every single person. Is the sex drive, the drive for security, and a drive for a place in society. Everybody arrives on this planet with those drives. Period. Nobody fault they got them. Nobody's credit that they got them. That's what we arrived with. And those drives are what cause us to go ahead and live, to reproduce, to function, to become a society, to grow. To, that's the energy, the raw energy that causes us to be alive and to be human beings. So their purpose is to supply us the energy to exist as human beings. But they are not in charge. They're, they're just simply there to give us the energy to do this. Now, for most of us, since we don't involve, we were self-centered, we were trying to control these drives on our own. And that is impossible. As I said earlier, we could wish to be moral. I wanted to live up to moral standards, and I couldn't. I kept failing. And the only way I knew to solve that was to lower the standards. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just keep bringing them down, bringing them down, bringing them down. Finally, I got down, and I said, well, at least I haven't murdered anybody. So that makes me good. And then if I had killed somebody, I'd have to come up with something else. You know what I mean? Because... I couldn't get peace of mind. I couldn't live up to anything. The problem was I was trying to live up to them on my own power. I was trying to be godly by myself. And then I could take the credit for it. Don't want to give God the credit. That's what an ego will do. So here the, these character defects were born in us. And 
they take over our lives and, they, and we end up doing terrible things. And of course, alcohol just lets all the character defects out of the bag unchained. You know, as soon as we pour it in, whatever control was there before, here we are. We're just out unleashing ourselves on the world. We do all these things and then we feel terrible about it and it just this cycle runs on and on. So I must be a terrible person. We come here and they go, no, you're not a terrible person. Here is the correct adjective. It's used throughout our literature. This is the type of person you are. Stupid. <laughs> You're not a terrible person. You're stupid. You look in there. You Bill Rice that we were especially stupid in this area. Made a lot of stupid mistakes. We're stupid. The stupid plan to live without a God. What a stupid plan. That would be like deciding to drink without alcohol. Well, I got the glass, I got the bar, got the music. Hey, pal, you're missing the main event. So we had a stupid plan. The only problem is, in order to change it, we got to admit that it's stupid, that it's wrong, that this plan isn't working. And so... We do that by, we don't convince you, we don't show you AA's theory and get it on a blackboard and then you intellectually see that it's superior to your plan for living. We don't do that at all. But we win the argument every time. We get a new guy in here, PhD from Princeton, smarter than the whip, and he keeps losing discussions with somebody who had a second grade education filled with street smarts. Just keeps losing every discussion. You know why? Because they don't discuss theory. They only discuss Results. Oh, I see. You went to Princeton. You have a PhD. Well, you're wearing a wristband from a nut ward on your arm. <laughs> your family doesn't talk to you. Your mother hates you. You can't hold a job. I, on the other hand, have a third grade education. I have serenity, peace of mind, 23 years of sobriety. My family loves me. My children love me. My boss loves me. So, you want to talk? <laughs> so we'll never compare theories. We'll only compare results. And if you're a new alcoholic, you just lose automatically. <clears throat> so we've got to be willing to entertain this idea that we're not guilty. None of this is our fault. We had a stupid plan. It's a mess. The channel is blocked. It's nobody's fault. Why don't we clean it up? Okay? You know what I mean? And we can just walk into this thing, no guilt, no nothing. It's just, this is the deal. This stuff is blocked here. There was a hurricane. I don't care what you want to say. It's blocked. Let's clear it up. As soon as we're willing to do that, we now can fearlessly go in inventory this has nothing to do with what we did or anything like that this is just how it is and then we're able to fill out one of these sheets we're able to look at it in a little more relaxed fashion then we come and now what are we going to do with this information we got it all written down we got this thing this is an accurate appraisal this is what the channel is blocked with ready to go let's go and we notice on the list that one of the things that shows up all the time is rationalization rationalization we constantly 
explain things to our advantage. Our ego jumps in and we have motives that are this way and that way. Well, if rationalization is such a powerful force in our lives, how do we know this thing is worth anything? This could be all crap. How do we know that this is true? How do we know this is the real blockages? We don't want to send all this effort in to clear this stuff out and it's wrong information. Well, that's why we have a fifth step. We have, There's a spiritual um, principle <clears throat> that in order to see the truth about ourselves, we run it by another human being. We admit it to ourselves, to God, and to another human being. It reminds me of trying to see the third dimension in aerial photos so that you can measure height and depth and all that. So you get two photos that are just slightly from a different angle, and then you use those glasses, and then boom, it jumps out, and you can see it. In order to see the truth about ourselves, we need this second perspective sitting right next to us, looking at the same sheet that you're looking at. And it can bring the third dimension out. And stuff that we thought was real serious turns out to be not so serious. Stuff we were hiding and minimizing will suddenly come to light, and we have a wonderful picture. And we suddenly are free to start forgiving ourselves. And we're suddenly free to trust other people. We had secrets that we thought had to go to the grave with us. And they held great power over us. And we just walked around year after year with this secret knowledge that, God, if anybody ever finds out, oh my God. And the only power that that junk had was that we hadn't told anybody. And that's where it got its power. Well, why is this stuff so powerful? Because I can't tell. But what if you told? Well, then it wouldn't be powerful anymore. You see what I mean? As soon as it's out, and the person you're talking goes, oh, I did that about 12 times. Yeah, yeah. And you go, well, I thought this was going to get me in jail. I thought this would be, nobody would ever talk to me. No, no. What else you got there? It's just, there it is. Now, I facetiously said one night that I've heard a lot of fifth steps over the years, maybe in a couple hundred, something like that. And I was trying to think if there's anything different. You know what I mean? It's, it's, if you really think about it, it's all, it's, everything is almost exactly the same. And I think the only difference, there's, there's two categories that I've been able to determine. And that is the group of guys that have not had sex with cows. <laughs> That's about it. That's about the... <laughs> That's about it. Other than that, everybody's exactly the same. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just remarkable how we agonize over these things. So this sharing in the fifth step is huge. And we have a set of promises. We begin to trust other people. We begin to understand that living in isolation is the worst possible thing we can do. And what's our tendency? The next time something goes wrong, stop calling. Uh-oh, something went wrong. I guess I'll handle it alone. Okay, I'll stop going to meetings. Okay, I'll stop calling. And that's why what Larry was talking about last night, it's so important to have a home group so you go there and people can see that something's wrong. Okay, what is it, Sandy? You're going to tell us now or when we get coffee afterwards? Nothing's wrong. Don't tell me nothing's wrong. I can see your face. What is it? What is it? What is it? What is it? And then finally, okay. And I go, is that it? Yeah. 
oh, well, let's go get coffee. All right. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just, it's got to be shared. And so there's this tremendous lessons in this fifth step about all the rest of our future that we'll never live alone again, that we don't want to do that. We want to, but why are we doing all this? It isn't so that we're more social, so that we get along with people better. Just open this channel. We got to keep going back and keeping our eye on the ball. We already went to the end of the book. We already saw the ending. The ending is spiritual awakening, conscious contact. So this is what this is all building up to. This is how we get it. So then we finally do this. And then we sit down and we go, man, wasn't that huge? I just went through the fifth step. And now I can go into the um, big book on step six and seven, two paragraphs. I'm out of there. I'm almost on eight. Right? We go into the sipping. Right, well, are you ready? Right? You, did you skimp? Did you do this? Did you do that? I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness. You and my fellows grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. We have now completed step seven. Then about 12 years later, <laughs> no, I'm going back in history now. Bill wrote that in 1938, and then about 12 years later, he's writing the 12 and 12, and guess what he says about step six? This is step that separates the men from the boys. This step separates the girls from the women. This step is huge. This step is the epic step in Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, I didn't notice that when I read those two sentences before. <laughs> didn't say anything about epic in there. Well, maybe we better go back and look at it. What does that say in there? It says we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. That's all it says. It's a pretty simple thing to me. You want to become a better person? You want that channel? Yeah! It's just like when you ask people, you want the federal deficit to be removed? Yeah! Okay, we'll raise your taxes. We'll take that deficit out and nothing flow. Whoa, 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 whoa. Well, we'll cut your favorite program. Then we can reduce it. It's in the specifics that we run into the problem. You know what I'm talking about? You want to become a better person? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. How'd you like to get rid of lust? <clears throat> All of it? Yeah, yeah. All of it. 100%. Totally gone. No kidding. 100%. Totally gone. Lust free. Um. What does that mean, lust free? I mean, just, just, I mean, I want to do it, but I'm just trying to get a thought. Is that like, is that like no sex? Is that like, um, I'll tell you what. What I'd like to do is make some progress in the area of lust. Because after all, and then we see, this is where we grab something from another part of the book. We claim progress, not perfection. <laughs> so what I'd like is to get rid of most of my lust. I'd like, I'd like to get rid of most of my... Okay, all right, all right. Most of your lust. Yeah, yeah. Okay, how about gossiping? You know, you do a lot of that gossiping. You know, it's, it's, it ruins AA groups. It's very destructive. It hurts the other person. What do you think? 
totally lifted out of you? Yeah. Yeah, I'm tired. Well, but if there's a really good story, <laughs> what I'd like to do is get rid of almost all of the gossip. I'd like to practically, practically eliminate gossiping from my life. That's what I'd really like to do. But what about anger? Yeah, I'd like to get rid of anger. I'd, I'd like to get rid of unjustified anger. That's what I'd like to do. <laughs> But once in a while, I mean, you just got to vent your seat. You gotta, you gotta, so I'd like to get rid of Yeah, I'd like to get rid of most of that. Okay, that's good. How about greed? Trying to get more. Trying to get... Yeah, I, I think we should get rid of most of that. Actually, I should get rid of most of that greed. I should get rid, We go through every character defect there is, and we want to get rid of most of it. Isn't that funny? We don't want to get rid of all of it. And Bill writes about why? Why not? Why do we want to get rid of all of it? Because we like some of them a lot. That's why. And he writes an interesting sentence in there. He says, this is the riddle of our existence. Is knowing that this help is available, we decide not to take advantage of it. Why? Why would we keep holding on to lust or greed or gossip or fear Envy or laziness or gluttony. Why do I keep eating a bag of potato chips every night? A big one. <laughs> Why do I keep doing that? Because I like to eat a bag of potato chips every night, okay? Makes me feel good. I like to chew. Just makes me feel better, you know? What's wrong with an occasional potato chip? That's a carton a week, Sandy. Okay, okay. <laughs> So there's this interesting sentence in the 12 and 12. It says, we tend to settle for as much perfection as will get us by. <laughs> That's what we tend to do. You're in business. You would like to be known as an honest man, an honest woman. I would like the reputation of being totally honest. I don't want to be totally honest, but I would like the <laughs> reputation. I want to reserve the right to stick it to him once in a while just to keep the business going. I don't want to. I don't want to have the option stripped from me. You see what I'm saying? I remember looking at this and going, "Holy cow!" The implication of step six is perfection. We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects. Here, I'd be Mother Teresa if I took this step. I'd be Mother Teresa. Not panic started setting in. I think Mother Teresa is great, but don't you think that's a little extreme? I mean, does she bowl? Um, what does she do I don't want you know that's going too far and so and so then I got to make up a reason why I'm not willing to do this am I into this to grow spiritually or not yeah I am well why aren't you doing this well I'll tell you I, it's because I'm unselfish that's why I don't want to do this if I did this step and became perfect you know what I mean like perfect and then I'm like living in my neighborhood. Well, the rest of the people aren't perfect, and there I'd be perfect. And they'd be looking over going, God, that guy is perfect. And we're not. And it would make them so uncomfortable to live next to a perfect guy. So for their sake, I'm going to stay an ass. You see what I'm saying? I'm, 
I got to find a reason for not being willing to do this. So I'm, and the ego is just going all over the place. So you can see this step is pretty big, isn't it? We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. And so then, we, then our ego says, hey, that's just a theory. Have you ever met anybody that's perfect? What do you mean God will remove all these defects? Have you ever seen God remove all these defects? Show me one example. Give me one example. And the problem is, every one of us has an example. What was our worst character defect? Drinking. Did it get removed? Yes. Why? Because I got entirely ready to have it removed. I was ready to have that totally removed. I didn't want any reservations whatsoever. So if you can become 100% willing and humbly ask, it can be removed. And so this is the struggle for the rest of our lives is to try and become more willing. Uncover, discover, discard Chuck Chamberlain. What else can I inventory that's wrong about me that maybe this year I could become entirely willing to get rid of? Spirituality is like riding in a balloon. And you throw over some weight and you get up to 3,000 feet. It's the best view you've ever seen. It's the most exciting thing. You look around and say, I never saw a view like this in my life. But if you stay at 3,000 feet for five years, that view gets old. I've seen 3,000. I've been seeing 3,000 for five years. Well, why don't we find a couple more character defects to throw over? And we throw over, we go to 7,000. And go, yeah, that's more like it. And we're there for five years. And then we go, 7,000 sucks, just like 5,000 sucks. <laughs> well, what else can I get rid of to get a better view? And so we look and inventory, what, all right, all right, all right. And over it goes. See, I thought we came here just to stop drinking. I thought that was the deal. Not drinking's the name of the game. They, you know what's in the fine print? And changing everything about you. That's the other thing. <laughs> and so this is a huge step. And the reason it's such a huge step is... Um, there's a story that I generally tell with this, and it's, it came from... Um, oh... C.S. Lewis, so I give the proper credit, and involves the story of the little boy with a toothache, baseball player, he's supposed to go out and play this big game, the coach said get eight hours sleep, he goes to bed early, and long about 11 o'clock at night starts a little tingling, and he knows if he calls his mother, she'll bring two aspirin, he'll go right back to sleep, he'll get eight hours sleep and play the ball game, but he doesn't call his mother. He sits there and goes, maybe he'll go away by itself. And, you know, after two hours, it just it tingles a little harder and a little harder and a little bit harder, and he's not getting any sleep. Finally, at 3 a.m., he calls his mother. I got a little toothache. She gives him the aspirin. He goes back to sleep, but he only gets four hours sleep, makes three errors, and gets no hits. So the question is, what's going on with that kid? What the hell's wrong with that kid? Why didn't he get the two aspirin and get eight hours sleep? Now, we, now we'll see what it is. He knew he'd get the two aspirin. See, the problem was he knew his mother, who's the supply of help. He knew he'd get the two aspirin, but he knew that his mother wouldn't stop there. She would make a dental appointment. You know what I mean? To go in and check this little tingle in the tooth out. And then when he got to the dentist's office, he knew his dentist. And the dentist wouldn't stop there. He would look at that tooth, and then it'd say, while you're here, let me just look at, uh-oh, here's one here, and here's one here, and here's one here. Let's make three appointments. Now he's going to have three appointments, three little fillings, and when he finishes, he has perfect teeth. He didn't want perfect teeth. He wanted two aspirin. 
<laughs> you see what I'm saying? He did not want that kind of help. He wanted limited help. And this we're talking about in step six. I'd like to be semi-lustful. I'd like to be semi-honest. I'd like to almost get rid of this. I'd like to get a little better in this area. Well, if you're going to do that, you have to do it on your own. Because the only help that's available is perfect help. You see, that's, that's why this is such an epic step. Would you ever be willing to allow God to totally come into your life in this area and be totally free of it? Wow, this is hard. This is really huge. So to make this kind of a journey is remarkable. It's the biggest journey that human beings make. We're trying to move from the material world into the spiritual world. We're trying to live in this material world, but not be affected by it, not be jerked around by everything that happens. Because there's something inside of us that tells us where we ought to be heading is towards this God, towards this higher power. Look what happened after the World Trade Centers. The churches started filling up. In meetings, we're starting to get a little more crowded. It was as if I need something beyond myself. I need, so this is inside of each of us and the sixth step sends us there. And so finally we get this willingness and we go, well, now I'm on my way. And then the seventh step is just as big. And very briefly, the rest of them go fairly fast. So we'll get through them. The seventh step is, you know, think about it. Now here's what's wrong. I finally got willing. Now I'm just going to ask God to remove them. And it just goes like, the, okay, God, please remove the following. That would be asking God to remove. Now, the quiz for today is take out a sheet of paper and write down the difference between regular asking and humbly asking. And if you're new, you probably are sitting there with the pencil going, huh? <laughs> the difference between regular asking, yeah, what is the difference between, like, just regular asking? Hey, God, get rid of these. That would be regular asking. Now, humbly ask. And I remember when I tried that, I went, how do you humbly ask? Oh, you probably get your knees. Um, no, you got to get humble first. What is humble? Well, humble is when you look like this. Oh, there's a look. There's a look that humble people have. So you probably got to do this in front of a mirror. Okay. Hi, God. Um, what is it? And Bill writes, we don't have a nodding acquaintance of humility. We haven't got a clue what humility is. It has no place in the free enterprise system. Hey, drive a Buick. Get humble. <laughs> it would sell nothing. And we talk about pride, pride, pride. And you look in the dictionary and guess what humble says, humility says? A total absence of pride. Zero pride. All pride. And I was in the Marine Corps and I'm going, pride? What is this? Communist organization? Get rid of pride. Pride is a wonderful, powerful energy if you're not going to use God. You know what I mean? It'll motivate people. It'll get something done. But totally is self-centered. That's what you can accomplish on your own. And what this is saying is, you can go way beyond what you can accomplish on your own if you involve God. Why just bring your power? Why not bring infinite power to everything that you encounter? And so humility is the awareness 
of me being nothing and God being everything. Instead of becoming a big shot, I want to become a small shot. You know what I mean? I want to be so tiny I can go through a screen door. I don't want to be this big. See, big shots have to push all that bigness through the universe. They have to push it into the shopping center. Hey, I can't walk through the mall. Everybody's in my way. You know, we're so big going out there. And everything goes against us. And we feel the resistance as we try to push this ego through the world. And then we go, well, I'll just be nothing. And then we just go through the world like, I'm not even here, man. I don't have a way. I'm just doing God's work. I don't have nothing can go against my way because I don't have a way. Do you ever think that your only problem you ever have is not getting your way? You'd be a servant of God. Servant is the highest pay grade we have in AA. You know that? You can't go higher than that. That's the top. You've got to work and work and work and climb your way all the way to servant. And that's the, what a winner is, is a servant. And you say, I'm just out here just doing what God gives me this intuition to do. And so, when this transformation takes place, we are, our needs are being met from the inside, so we don't have to go out and get anything to get fixed. We're already fixed. We already have everything that we need, and we're simply moving through life. And so, humility is an awareness that we want to go through whatever it takes to become God-centered. That means we're going to have to go through the pain of not getting our way in everything. And so we're going to voluntarily go through this transforming pain. Um, the story I always tell on this one is there were some horseshoes and bars of iron. You heard this story. I told it, I'm sure. And they were up in the horseshoer's shelf, and they'd been there for 25 years, hidden behind brown paper, and they, and they were complaining up there. They'd been 25 years, and they're going, this is it? This is all there is to life? Just hanging around, listening to all that damn noise out there, and it's dusty? There ought to be more to life than this. Sounds like us on a bar stool, in a bar, you know what I mean? And one day, they ripped the paper off, and the blacksmith said, my God, these guys, look at this. They've been up, what are you guys doing up here? You're not supposed to be on that. Yeah, I knew we weren't supposed to be. You're supposed to be a horseshoe. What the hell is that? Well, that's the most beautiful thing in the world. You're going to be on this great animal. You're going to be traveling all around the world. You have a, you are going to be the most useful thing. Oh, it's so exciting. You're going to be a horseshoe. Well, wow, I'm ready. You're ready. We're ready. We're ready. We're going to be a horseshoe. Right then, they could ask to be a horseshoe. Okay. They just said, you want to be a horseshoe? Yeah, yeah. Let me show you how you become a horseshoe. So they stuck it in the fire, got red hot, put it on the anvil, boom, bam, bam, and they're watching, their eyes are popping out. In the hot water, the steam's coming up, and more banging, shaping, and then punching holes in, and they held it up and said, there, that's a horseshoe. Now, if you ask, you're humbly asking. You know what's involved. You know that it is not going to be easy, but you want it anyway. Spirituality is changing our attitude about pain. It is looking through the pain to see the beauty of what is coming. It is this, the transformation is just on the other side of the willingness to experience not getting my way. And as soon as we go through it, it wasn't even painful. It becomes effort. It's kind of like 
when you're out of shape and you want to get back in shape, it's hard. Remember that first week in the gym and you go home at night and every damn thing hurts everywhere. And you're like, ah, 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 I'm dying. But as you keep it up, you know, three weeks later you go in the gym, it's not painful, it's just effort. And it's wonderful because you know the results it's going to produce. And you're just, you know, I love going down there and go pushing myself through this because I get these results. And the same thing can happen in the spiritual world. I understand I'm not going to be comfortable, but I'm going to go through with it anyway. And that's really what humility is. Now, eight and nine are making amends, making a list of people we had harmed, and that is um, learning a new thing about harm. And harm, you know, is gossiping. Harm is withholding affection. It's not punching and all that. It turns out that us alcoholics, self-centered in the extreme, even after we get sober, until we work the program, have a very unusual talent. We can bring out the worst in everyone. <laughs> we just walk in the room and da-da-da-da, and people start fighting with each other, and they start causing trouble and doing all this. And this is our secret talent, because we've got to keep everybody off balance, and we got to do that. So we do a lot of harm. I can remember coming to work Monday hungover and people would come in all happy with their weekend and I didn't think it was fair. They were happy and I wasn't, so I would just be grump. I don't want to hear about your weekend. I wanted to bring everybody down to my level. You know, this is the type. So harm, harm, harm. Well, that's fine. We're going to go make amends to those people, but let's see and learn what, what it is that we do to harm so that we can stop it. Why would we want to stop it? So that people will behave differently when we're around. We transform the world this way. My parents were having their 50th wedding anniversary. My sister was doing the list of people that were coming, and this was quite a few years ago, and there was this one uncle, and I said, oh, no, so you're not going to invite him. No, 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 God, God, he's so abrasive. He's so this, he's just, you know, it's just one argument after another. And my sister said, he only does that when you're around. (laughs) What? Oh, no, everybody loves him. He's great. He's wonderful. And she had about 20 years in the program then, so I had to believe her. I had to believe that this was true. And so I just pretended he was as great as my sister was saying. When I saw him, I said, hey, John, how you doing? I'm so glad to see you. And I started shaking his hand, and he, hi, I'm glad to see you. You see what I'm saying? It was just transforming. And that's what step eight is. Learn how what it is about us that is causing this in the other people. And once we do that, we now bring a program of attraction in. I'm talking about the dry cleaning lady. I'm talking about the gasoline station. I'm talking about the supermarket where the line is too long. I'm talking about every little place where you take yourself and I take myself during the day's march. And as I take that old personality in and stir up every little pocket as I go around, I just come home at the end of the day and I go, man, it's awful out there. Everybody's got an attitude. I say, this place sucks. I I work this up. I start seeing my role in it. And I go out and I'm I'm this different person. And I go from here, the dry cleaning lady, and over here and over there. And everybody responds to a different energy. And I come home at night and I go, what a day. These people are great. Those people are great out there. And it was all because of me. This all came out of this eighth step. This learning about myself. And then the, uh, and then we finally do make these amends in order to not drag the past with us. It's very hard to live a day at a time and drag the 1990s with us. 
and all the memories and the people we don't want to run into. So we can go out and we can do this, but it's a bigger purpose than that. We're getting closer to God. All of this is designed to get us closer to God. About 15 years ago, I was sitting in a townhouse on Capitol Hill where I was living at the time. I was getting ready to watch the Redskins. I love to watch football on Sunday afternoon. I had everything all set up. I'm all excited. And I was just sitting there, and this memory bubble came up right on the couch. And it said, back in 1954, in Pensacola, Florida, you borrowed $70 from Bill Marseille to pay your rent, and you beat him out of it. You got transferred, and then you you forget, and then every time you saw him, you may believe you didn't remember. You beat him out of the 70 bucks. And I went, right, yep, I did. Now, let's get the game on, and we're going to watch the Redskins. <laughs> and this energy just said, no, you're going to find Bill Marseille. you got to pay him back. Yeah, I know, but, you know, not now. Yeah, now. And I'm going, not during the game. I'm not going to be calling. I haven't seen the guy in 20 years. How am I going to find him? I can't find him. I don't know where he is. How am I going to find him on a Sunday? You could try. What? What am I going to do? How do I know? This is me talking to me. You know what I mean? I want to watch the game. I don't want to call Bill Marseille. I don't mind the 70 bucks. I just don't want to call. You know, why now? Oh, it wouldn't let me alone. I'm just going and going. So I finally cut a deal. I said, okay, here's the deal. I know you like to ski. I don't know where all the ski thing is, but I know Vermont has skiing. Here's the deal. I call Vermont, ask information. He's not there. I watch the game. And it was like the other end, whoever's on the other end said, okay. So I go to the operator. Hello, Vermont. Yeah. Have you got a William P. Martin? You do? What's his number? Okay. So I call him up. And I'm trying to get this all done. They're kicking off. You know, hello, Bill. I got to talk fast. So I get him on the line. He's thrilled to hear from me. Oh, my God, because we were close buddies and drinking and all that. And I said, Bill, Bill, let me get right to the point. 1955, I borrowed $70. You remember that? We were in the apartment, my wife and I, and I never had the rent. Uh, vaguely, I think so. I said, yeah, but I did. I did, Bill. And listen, I'm in AA, and we do these steps. And, you, and your name came up. i got to do these steps. What steps? Well, I'm in, you know, there are 12 steps in the program. So I started telling him and how happy I was and all this kind of stuff. And he said, okay, okay. And I said, well, $70, all these years of interest, I'll send you $150. And he said, okay. I mail up the $150. A couple of weeks later, he sends me back a box. He ran a gift shop at this uh, ski resort. I must have had $200 worth of stuff in it, you know, wind chimes and this and that. Then he called me a year later and he said, I'm moving to North Carolina. Here's my phone number. we got to get together. Yeah, Bill, we got to get together. Now years go by. And I'm speaking down in North Carolina. After the meeting, a lady comes up and introduced herself. She said, you don't know me. My name is Mary Marseille. Well, it's such an unusual name. I said, oh, Bill Marseille's wife. She said, no, his widow. And I went, oh, God, I'm so sorry. When did that happen? Oh, it happened a couple years ago. Oh, I'm so sorry. And then I'm going, what is she doing here? And she's got an Al-Anon badge on. And she said... You know that day you called and you told him how great AA was? He joined the next day. And so this had nothing to do with the 70 bucks. This had nothing to do with working the eight steps so that I could get to watch the Redskin game. This had to do with how do we get Bill Marseille sober? How do we cause that to happen? And so there's 
We never know when we make an amend. When you make an amend, you tell the person, I'm in AA and I'm trying to do this. How many times they will say, can you help my sister? Can you help my brother? It's amazing what's here. It's so much bigger than we think it is in steps eight and nine. We finally finish with this settling of the path. We're ready to live a day at a time in the 10th step. And 10 is the, I'm going to talk a little bit about it, and 11, 12 will be real quick and we'll be out of here. Day at a time is the 10th step. How to live a day at a time. All it says is continue to take personal inventory when we're wrong, promptly admit it. So what has that got to do with living a day at a time? Well, if you look at the 12 and 12, this is what I think spirituality is. I think this one little sentence has the whole package in it, and it's that spiritual axiom that's in the 12th step, and it says, whenever we're disturbed, no matter what the cause, there's something wrong with us. What's wrong with us? We're disturbed. That is what's wrong with us. We're disturbed. That is what's wrong with us. You know where it says... We have a daily reprieve contingent on our spiritual condition. Disturbed is a bad spiritual condition. That is a very bad spiritual condition. That is a non-spiritual condition. That is, God is blocked off. Don't worry about it. You feel bad. God is blocked off. The channel just got shut. Disturbance is shut. No energy from God flowing through us. We're blocked again. We're alone. We are out, just us, against the world. And we're overpowered. Because it's just us. When we have God with us, it's like having your big brother in grammar school. Nobody picks on you. You see what I'm saying? And so, disturbed is the biggest warning thing we can get. And that's why Bill talks about a spot check inventory. Uh-oh, disturbed. <clears throat> Time out. Why time out? I don't want to do things when I'm disturbed. Then I got a lot of messes to clean up. The boss comes in. He said, hey, Sandy, you wrote this memo about congressman so-and-so. Yeah, it stinks. Well, screw you, I quit. <laughs> and the words are going across the room to his ear. And I need the money. I don't really want to quit. And I'm trying to get the words back before he hears them. <laughs> and he hears them and he says, you're out of here. Don't want to act when you're disturbed. So what can we do? What can we do about that? Self-restraint. You know that? Right out of the 12 and 12. We pray for self-restraint. We pray for this wonderful gift. This is a five-second cushion around us. A time cushion, if you will. So that when events happen, we have five seconds before we do anything. And during that five or six seconds, we can... Allow us to come back down to a state of undisturbed. We can make an honest analysis of what's wrong. If the fault is out there, we can forgive them. If the fault is here, we can make an amend. And we can go back to being undisturbed. And that's all there is to life, is always going back to being undisturbed. Because if we're undisturbed, we don't need anything. We're just existing. How are things going? Great, man. Well, I hear you don't have your job yet. I know. But right now, I have everything I need. It is absolutely wonderful. That's undisturbed. So undisturbed is the point. Because when we're undisturbed, people react to us that way. We bring it everywhere that we go. And so this is what the 10th step is. Anytime I'm starting to get undisturbed, I want to go, time out. Time out. Call up my sponsor. 
What's the matter? I'm disturbed. Okay, let's talk about it and get you undisturbed. You've got to forgive him. But he did something that's unforgivable. It goes way beyond the limit. Did you ever set a limit on what's forgivable? Well, I let my sister do that, but holy cow, now she did this. So I was trying to think of myself, where do you draw the line on forgiveness? You know, how far do you let somebody go? Where is the limit? So I was thinking of, do we have any examples anywhere of what where the line is? Great spiritual teachers. And I was thinking of one who was around a couple thousand years ago, and they were nailing him to a cross. And he said, forgive them. They know not what they do. So it appears that forgiving goes up to and includes nailing to a cross. <laughs> now, my problem is I'm always having stuff worse than getting nailed to a cross happen to me. <laughs> See, nailing to a cross is happening to somebody else. But cutting me off in traffic is happening to me. <laughs> so I have to expand forgiveness. Why? To let people off the hook? Is that what it is? It has nothing to do with them. It's to get undisturbed. It's to get undisturbed. It's so that I win. It's, I want to be a winner all the time. I want to be undisturbed. If I let you off the hook and I get undisturbed, I win. Who cares whether it was fair? Who cares for that? Fairness is a one-way street. It only goes out from me. It doesn't come back. It's not supposed to come back. I'm supposed to be fair. That's what the spiritual program says. If I'm fair, the whole world will be fair. That's it. Because if I'm not acting fairly, if I don't trust, I'm my own role model. And if I don't trust, then nobody does. Because nobody's better than me. So that means you can't trust anybody. You see what I'm saying? And if I'm not fair, nobody is. Because nobody's better than me, and I'm not fair. So that means nobody in the world can be trusted. And nobody in the world will ever treat you fairly. So then we just, you got the energy going the wrong way. Fairness isn't supposed to come in. Trust isn't supposed to come in. It's supposed to go out. So now I trust, trust people. I'm fair to people. And the world becomes a trusting place. And the world becomes a fair place. It just does. So I trust everybody that I talk to and I get taken for 50 bucks once in a while. So? So? What's that? You want the 50 bucks back and stay disturbed all the time? You want to not trust anything in the world and still have your 50 bucks? Would you pay 50 bucks to be free of all those insecurities? I'd pay millions. Boy, that's cheap getting hit up for 50 bucks every so often just because you're too trusting. Now, it's just the dynamics is just huge in the 10th step. Undisturbed. Undisturbed. Remember that. This, that inventory. The end of the day inventory. How can I go through and do this better? And then as we get into 11 and the prayer of St. Francis, which uh, let me just read. And now that we can think about it, we've been talking all about the jackpot. We're right at the very end. What does it feel like? What did a saint think about what we're trying to accomplish as a human being? What are your goals? Let me see. He probably said yacht. Probably wanted a mansion. Probably wanted a big family and a lot of security and the president of the United States. Let's see. What did he really want? <laughs> look what he wanted. My God, that doesn't look like anything. Make me a channel of thy peace that where there's hatred I may bring love, that where there's wrong I may bring a spirit of forgiveness. 
that where there's discord, I may bring harmony, that where there's error, I may bring truth, that where there's doubt, I may bring faith, that where there's despair, I may bring hope, that where there are shadows, I may bring light, that where there is sadness, I may bring joy. Lord, grant that I may seek rather to comfort than to be comforted, to understand than to be understood, to love than to be loved. For it is by self-forgetting that one finds, it is by forgiving that one is forgiven, it is by dying that one awakens to eternal life. This isn't some abstract words that a saint wrote. This is us. That each one of us can look at this and go, hey, make me a channel. You know, hey God, cancel the yacht. Cancel the yacht. I want to be a channel. I'd, I'd rather be a channel. Forget the yacht. Make me a channel. Make me bring harmony. Let me flow through me as I go out. Use me to sober this guy up. Use me to help somebody forgive. Please, let me use that. It's just a question, what are you asking for? See, I was asking for yachts. I was asking that this stop and that this person be healed and this person do that. None of that's in the 11th step. Pray only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. So I don't, who am I to know if somebody should get well? Maybe it's God's will that they go up to the big meeting. I'm not, I'm trying to block it. You know, God's going, Mary, I love you. Come on up. Come on up. And I'm going, no. You know what I mean? This is, so that's why this is a, let me just do thy will. And so that's the new thing to ask for. This is the in thing. It's hip. It's cool. Right here. Prayer St. Francis. Let's become a channel. Let's become a channel. And the channel goes out. And then in our 12th step, and we wrap it up right here. Forget about, we're going to carry the message. It just comes with the territory. It's hard to hold people back from carrying the message. They've been sober a week. They're, man, they're out there. Hey, Bill, come here. Blah, 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 blah. They don't know what the message is, but by God, they're carrying it. <laughs> and you know something? All they got to do is get that car and go pick that guy up or that gal up and put her on the front row. Okay, Mary, watch what happens. Mm. <laughs> And that's enough of a message. I mean, we're there. We're doing it. We're doing this. But what about, and we, having had a spiritual awakening, obviously, we even ourselves will see this. We now see the world differently. We now, as Chuck Chamberlain says, we got a new pair of glasses. We just couldn't see the world, and now we see it clearly. We've been given a new vision. It's the energy from this channel is coming through and causing us to see everything differently. We see the world as a wonderful place. We see human beings as children of God. We see that maybe we don't understand it right now, but it'll all come about, and we'll see the answer later on. And this is very powerful stuff. But then it says, practice these principles in all our affairs. And it really means that. It doesn't mean just an AA. We shouldn't feel as safe in AA and not safe out of AA. Those are all God's children at the office place, down here, over there. We just, I make everybody an honorary member of AA. I meet them on the plane, wherever it is. And uh, I'm, boy, if I'm talking to a guy on the plane for five minutes, AA's in the conversation. Oh, yeah, well, I joined AA 35 years ago, saved my life, it's the greatest damn thing in the world. Yeah, I used to be a Marine fighter. There's other things, but I always work that in. And guess what? One out of five. Can you help my sister? Can you help my sister? I mean, you know, so I'm um, this way. You, everybody sets their own comfort level in that area. 
But the thing I want to wrap up with, practice these principles in all our affairs. And my favorite example of this, and I use it in a lot of talks, is, uh, let's see, I've been sober about um, two years, went to a meeting every night. The Marine Corps wouldn't promote me, and they pushed me out. So I'm at home, and I'm going, let's see. <laughs> what did God do for me lately? This great loving God that we got in AA. I go to a meeting every night, now I'm out. I got no money, I got six kids, I got no job, I know, what am I going to do? I got a resentment, I can't stand it, this sucks. You call AA a loving program, anybody ever get that way? In sobriety? So I get to a meeting, I never do this, I never raise my hand. You go to a meeting, you know, anybody got a topic, anybody got a topic? I, I never raise my hand, but that night I'm mad, and I go, yeah, I got a topic. Well, what's your topic, Sandy? Getting thrown out of the Marine Corps. Oh, I don't think that's a good topic for AA, Sandy, you know, I mean, getting thrown out of the Marine Corps. Okay, okay, topic, getting thrown out of the Marine Corps. That's the topic. Topic tonight, getting thrown out of the Marine Corps. And I figured, this is an AA group, they love me, that, you know, God, everything will help. I figured the first guy is going to raise his hand. Sandy, you get thrown out of the Marine Corps? That means you're available. I have a company, a large corporation, looking for a smart guy like you to come at our corporate with 75000 a year and a car and a new home. Would that be good? Now, see, that would be help. That would be help. <laughs> Guess what I get? Oh, thrown out of the Marine Corps? Say the serenity prayer. <laughs> you get thrown out of the Marine Corps? Double up on your meetings. you got a lot of time in your hand anyway. <laughs> Another guy, you're thrown out of the Marine Corps. Help a new guy. Take your mind off yourself. What's wrong with you? <laughs> the last guy, said at prayer of St. Francis. He was a Marine. <laughs> I went home that night and I said, I don't think I explained my problem very well. <laughs> what was that? What was that? I couldn't believe my ears what I heard there. So I never raised my hand again. Maybe seven years went by and boom! 20-year marriage explodes like an atomic bomb. I'm gone. Another guy's moving in. There are kids like him. They don't like me. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So I'm in a meeting. Anybody got a top? Yeah. Getting thrown out of your own house. Another guy's moving in. Oh, Sandy, I don't think that's a good topic. All right, okay. Topic tonight, getting thrown out of your own house. Another guy moving in. <laughs> You know what happened? The guy said, throw it out of your own house, serenity prayer. You've got to say the serenity prayer. <laughs> throw it out of your own house, double up on your meetings. Dude, you've got a lot of time on your hands. You've got to throw it out of your own house. <laughs> throw it out of your own house. Work with new people. Take your mind off of that. Take your mind off of that. Just work with new people. And the last guy, prayer St. Francis. He got thrown out of many homes. <laughs> Five more years went by, I'm in the real estate business, there's no mortgage money, everything's gone. You're not supposed to have all this sobriety and be almost broke. What is going on? So I'm at a meeting. And we got a topic? Yep. <laughs> bankruptcy. Oh, Sandy, bankruptcy's not a topic. I mean, I wanted to. Okay, bankruptcy, guess what happens? We go around the room, oh, bankruptcy. Serenity prayer. That's what you gotta do for bankruptcy. Double up on your meetings. Go to the eating meetings. Get free food. 
You work with the new people. Take your mind off of that. Take your mind off of that. Prayer of St. Francis. He took a vow of poverty. So here it was. Now, why am I telling that story? You've already know it. You can see it. What does it say? It says, there's one solution for all problems. That's what it's saying. First things first. Get right spiritually and see if there's any problems left. Just as we read in that wonderful chapter, it just happens. It's automatic. It just happens. We're freedom from all of this. Sure, those are problems. But if I'm close to my higher power, I don't care. You know, this will get straightened out. I'll get a job. I'll get back with this. I'll get that. But in the meantime, I'm relatively comfortable. So what is the wonderful thing that happens? And then this is the absolute wrap-up. There's a lot of pain that happens in life. Larry was talking about it last night. This is not a pain-free thing once we get sober. But let's try to measure pain. Let's say that you just got laid off because of cutbacks. And you've got four kids and you're not quite sure how you're going to feed them. And let's all agree in this room that that is worth 2,000 units of pain. Okay? That's, that's a universally accepted standard. You have now been inflicted with 2,000 units of pain. Now we're going to add on to that the fact that you are irate over the fact that you got laid off. Matter of fact, you've got a resentment. You think you got screwed in getting laid off. You, you're going to get your boss. You're going to, you hate the fact that you got laid off. Oh, this is 10,000 more units. It's, now we're at 12,000. But the 10,000 is optional. And the program can enable us to get rid of those 10,000 and always keep the pain level down at where it should be. Somebody dies, there's a mourning period that goes through. But we add on top of that, because we're so self-centered, they shouldn't have died to me. They hurt me so much. They did this, and, and I build it up so that I quadruple the amount of pain that is supposed to go with the event. And so it really feels like a wonderful world, even when the pain is coming, because we don't quadruple it with our self-centeredness. It is tremendous freedom. We just accept it. Acceptance is so powerful. Because God is in charge of this. And we just go, okay, so now I don't have a car. I accept it. Now, I'm, now I've got to deal with the anxiety of getting one. Instead of the rage that this happened to me. You, you all connect with that. That is what we get free from. So if you're new, I want to just wish you the best of luck. It has been an absolute pleasure uh, to share with you. And as I said in the very, very beginning, that if one new person out of this gets motivated to take the action to get closer to your personal God, that would be the greatest reward I can imagine. Uh, we're at the end of the time. Why don't we wrap it up with the Lord's Prayer uh, for everybody who would care to join in. <clears throat> Thank you.
Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.